0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
2: Hi there. Welcome to the latest episode of the Versailles Anniversary Project. My name is Zach Twomley and you are a history friend. You are listening to a podcast which has been running for nearly seven years. It feels like I've been doing this project for nearly seven years, but I haven't. I've only been doing it since November. It's the most detailed project, the most detailed thing I've ever done for When Diplomacy Fails. And the reason why I'm able to do it, you know the answer by now, is because this is a listener-supported podcast, and because thanks to your guys' support, I'm able to do this as my job. And it's super appreciated that I'm able to do this, but it's also reassuring to know that I have you guys in my corner Supporting me for a small amount of money, or a large amount of money every month, depending on how you are so inclined, on Patreon. By going to Patreon and by supporting this podcast, you are helping to make history thrive and you're also getting some pretty sweet things in return. I cannot express enough how special it is to me that you guys are supporting this podcast so well because it says so much about how much history really is appreciated and how much it's thirsted after, for lack of a better term. Your listenership is super appreciated, guys, and at times when it gets almost too much to keep on doing this because there's just so much pressures all over the place, your moral support, never mind the monetary support, your moral support makes all the difference. If you would like to be regularly informed about what's going down and When Diplomacy Fails Towers, if you'd like a regular injection, a daily injection of history goodness, then make sure to follow When Diplomacy Fails on Twitter. That is at WDF Podcast. If Twitter is not your thing, then go over to Facebook and join the Facebook group where you'll be able to talk to up to 700 history friends about the latest episode, about history stuff that's going on, about the silliest meme that I've ever shared, or so many other things. If neither of those things are for you, and if social media is something you are very much not a fan of, that is super okay. All you have to do to help spread the word is to tell somebody. Never mind sharing or following or whatever, or liking or commenting, whatever it is. The original way to do all that was just by word of mouth. And word of mouth, I am told, is still the most effective way to get the word of podcasts like these out there. Advertising costs an absolute bomb. Marketing itself costs an absolute bomb. Finding someone who understands all those things also costs an absolute bomb so rather than worry about those bombs I'm going to worry about the bomb that really matters that is the bomb that's in our logo in case you didn't know the logo of this podcast is a bomb but we are going to not worry about all that stuff we're going to worry about making as good a product as possible so that you guys will hopefully feel compelled to do the marketing for me and spread the word that is apparently how some of the biggest podcasts that exist today got their start because they committed themselves to making a quality product and their fans did the work for them. I have some of the best fans, the best history fans in the podcasting sphere, I believe. So, because you're doing your part, we are able to keep on growing and keep on making this thing a better place to be. Without any further ado then, let's get into one of my favourite episodes of this project. I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed writing it. miles from home, an American army is fighting for you. To the end, that the high ideals
0: for which America stands may endure upon the earth. I earnestly entreat my countrymen to pause before they rush Hitler to this revolutionary change, which may well be irretrievable. I know that it is hard for Americans to realize the magnitude of the
2: war in which we are involved.
0: France and Italy
1: between them have made waste people to their
2: You're listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 40. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to the 40th episode of the Versailles Anniversary Project. A nice, round number in our project, which we can all appreciate, but there was nothing all that satisfying to anyone's OCD senses happening in the latter half of February, or the first half of March, a century ago. With the major leaders absent from the ranks of the big three, most spectacularly in George Clemenceau's case, after a botched assassination attempt on the 19th of February, there was something of a power vacuum present. As we have noted, though, while this presented opportunities for some to fill the void, what it really meant was that little to no final decisions could be made. As the core question of how to deal with Germany and all the pertinent issues within that question were placed on the long finger, in the meantime... Committees of varying size and importance met, Edward House continued to see distinguished and important guests, and life, essentially, went on without the big three in Paris. The first optimistic phase of the Paris Peace Conference having passed, what faced these administrators, minor officials and placeholders, was a long slog, a hard slog, and a great deal of paperwork and busy work to get through before the German question was addressed again on the 8th of March. It is this busy work which we will examine today, a period of roughly two and a half weeks, wherein very little of substance was actually decided upon, but a whole load of things were discussed, talked through again and looked at one more time by people who believed that soon enough, this preliminary conference would begin to be followed by the final conference. Considering his role in the background, the fact that we haven't referenced him in a while, and the quality content which his diary provides. I feel it would be useful, before delving into the minutes of the Council of Ten in this interim period, to look instead at a day in the two and a half or so weeks of Harold Nicholson, a senior clerk in the British Foreign Office, who sat as a technical delegate on the Greek and Czech committees. Nicholson's record provides a great deal of colour and personality to the Paris Peace Conference at this stage, and by the end of this episode you'll not only feel for the man, you'll also marvel, or perhaps despair, at the sheer weight of work which he and his counterparts were forced to undertake. To make way for this final conference, the actual terms which Germany was to be presented with would have to be decided upon, at least in a general sense. But Nicholson helps to remind us that those Allied delegates were consumed by tasks other than sorting out the peace treaty with Germany. A committee, of course, had been established for that purpose, but committees also set to hammer out solutions in the difficult parts of the continent, and here is where Nicholson's detail shines, as a source of context for a period which is normally shrouded in mystery and the fog of stop-start diplomacy. Let's see how it all went down then, as I take you to the beginning of a very chunky episode in the aftermath of Woodrow Wilson's exit from Europe. Mm-hmm. Harold Nicholson provides us with an excellent window into the Paris Peace Conference, and perhaps the greatest example of how invaluable this window was is seen in the man's record of his activities during the second half of February and the first half of March 1919. Nicholson had arrived in Paris as an enthusiastic supporter of the League of Nations at the principle of self-determination and of giving everyone a fair chance to explain themselves. He left the whole process of first and foremost... Utterly exhausted. An exhaustion which he had never experienced in his life, nor knew was possible. But, more depressingly, he also felt, even despite these feelings of exhaustion, utterly dispirited at the way things had gone. This downward trend in Nicholson's mood is palpable, and we see it take shape as the days blend into one, and as the committees produce their reports, and the dinners or functions produce their weighted scenes. In between the bits of progress were infuriating wastes of time. One of the more aggravating being the Council of Ten's initial decision to call the different committees to present their reports, only to ask them to be rewritten as treaties, only to then interfere in each of the precise details which these committees dealt with. That's a bit of a technical way to start things off, but in constructing this episode I felt there was no better way to start than by looking at Harold Nicholson's diary. So for much of this episode, we'll use that diary to frame our analysis, and we'll use Nicholson's eyes and ears as our guide as to what went down. Interestingly, it was this period of roughly two and a half weeks that Nicholson found the most tiring and difficult, something which strikes me as strange, when this period is often regarded as something of a rest, and isn't really covered in much detail by other narratives. Somewhere where we can find a good bit of detail, as we'll see in the next massive episode, is in the minutes of what happened, the minutes of the Council of Ten, that is, which are actually also harder to find too, but guess who managed to find them? In the bibliography we release for this series, whenever that actually happens, I'd say in a few months when we're actually finished researching and writing the whole thing, you'll be able to find links to all of the Paris Peace Conference's minutes, courtesy of Sir Mars Hankey, who wrote them all down under the British delegation, but courtesy even more so to the Foreign Relations of the United States Papers, the people who Mara Sankey talked about at the time, who decided to digitise all of these, and then leave them just up there online for our enjoyment. A huge thanks must go out to the US government's efforts to digitise all of these, because if they hadn't done that, then, well, all of this would be a lot less easy to do. It's hard enough as it is to go through all those minutes, some very detailed minutes, of course, but imagine if those things didn't exist. We will be really at a loss, really at a disadvantage, and it's especially convenient that they're freely available. You can access them online. All you need to do is search Foreign Relations of the United States, or FRUCE, as I've taken to calling them, but only in private because it's a bit embarrassing, and then you'll be able to see what I see if you want to follow along. If not, if you just trust me to read these things, then great. Because resources like the minutes of the Paris Peace Conference can get a bit dry, it is also useful to have Harold Nicholson's diary to make things a bit more colourful and a bit more interesting. This whole exercise of detailing these sources to you and in just becoming overwhelmed with the sheer amount of things on offer, whether that be the minutes of all the different meetings, all the different secondary sources, every single person who seemed to attend, and their own diary and their own memoirs, All of that reminds me of something which Harold Nicholson said in his own diary in the early stage. The problem with the Paris Peace Conference, Nicholson said, and consequently the problem with looking at it now, wasn't that nothing was happening but that too much was happening and simultaneously to properly cover it in all of its detail and not only that but all of these events that took place they all produced their own mountains of paperwork in their own right which all those experts at the time had to sift through, but since I don't have a load of experts on hand, I have to do it all myself. We're going to do our best, but remember, if you would like to access any of these minutes, all you have to do is search Foreign Relations of the United States and look for the year 1919 to find them. It's not that hard. If I can do it, anyone can. And of course, as I said, they're all free. So it should be reiterated that just because the Big Three were absent, this did not mean that the Council of Ten failed to meet. On the contrary, with the second in command from each of the Big Three leading the charge, there was some optimism that progress would be made, that they'd be able to cut through the opinions or maybe the hesitation of the leaders like Lloyd George or Woodrow Wilson or Clemenceau and get down to the heart of the issue. It was in the spirit of that optimism that the call had been put out for all committees to present their conclusions by the 6th of March. Following some appeals, this was extended to the 8th of March. And when Nicholson finally brought his Greek committee report to the Council of Ten on that date, he found to his chagrin, but also to some measure of pride, that his was the only committee to have made its findings ready in time. That should give some indication of what we're dealing with here, so let's start our examination at the place where Nicholson was to spend most of his time, the Greek committee, which he walked to shortly after learning of Clemenceau's accident, on Friday the 19th of February, 1919. It should be said that the Italians do not come off well in Nicholson's account. On the 19th of February he recounts a supremely awkward situation where the Italian delegate on the Greek committee claimed that a report undertaken by a commission in 1913 had concluded on the importance of the Corfu channel for Italian interests and security, and added a portion of Albania to the Italian sphere in the process. The Italians were eager to have land and sea access through the Balkans and around Greece, but unfortunately for them in this case, Nicholson had actually brought the text of the 1913 report with him, and he produced it, exposing the truth in the process, that the conclusions which the Italians claimed had actually been false, and even the Italians which had sat in on that 1913 commission disagreed with what the Italians were attempting to say now. Nicholson noted that at this, the Italian delegate presenting this case turned purple. It was perhaps little surprise that the next day, Nicholson noted the Italians were obstructive and sulky when the Greek committee reconvened. The following day, on the 21st, Nicholson made it clear his true feelings when he wrote, I can't understand the Italian attitude. They are behaving like children, and sulky children at that. They obstruct and delay everything, and evidently think that by making themselves disagreeable on every single point, they will force the conference to give them fat plums to keep them quiet. No fat plums were to be sent to the Italians, though. They were to be mostly disappointed, make that supremely disappointed, because they were to receive no plums either from the Greek committee or from the conference in general. Nicholson does make note of the planned concessions which the Allies intended to give to Greece, most notably in Asia Minor, where significant minorities of ethnic Greeks lived. While Italian responses were awaited to these ideas, Nicholson rushed off to the Council of Ten, where an Albanian delegation was presenting its case. Turkan Pasha, an elderly bearded Muslim who had once served as Ottoman ambassador to Russia, presented the Albanian case as a native of the region himself. Very, very old and sad was how Nicholson viewed it. He was then kept busy until 1am with discussions over what to do about the news regarding Austrian bankruptcy. Considering how precious his time and involved his days were, Nicholson found that he was driven crazy by reports of wasted time. One such example of this wasted time came the next day on the 22nd of February, where the Council of Ten were meant to be discussing the Albanian question in more detail, and thus providing some measure of clarity and help for Nicholson's work, as Albania was wrapped up in the question of Greece on the Greek Committee, thanks to Albania's straddling of the border with the peers. Yet, Nicholson noted that rather than deal with Albania as they were meant to, the Council of Ten got stuck arguing about future procedure and the Albanian question never comes up, a waste of precious time. He then duly noted something we've mentioned before, that the deadline for handing in the committee reports was now extended to the 8th of March, as decided by the Council of Ten. Nicholson might have wondered at the Council of Ten setting down deadlines for other parties while they were unable to keep to their own agenda, but he didn't comment on the irony in his diary. Sunday was a day off, but he was back in on Monday the 24th of February to listen to the Greek premier, and a man who, so far, Nicholson had found quite impressive. Eleftherios Kyriakou Venizelos, who, if you don't mind, will be referring to as Venizelos from now on. The mouthful that his full name represented aside, Venizelos was Greece's most important national figure in the early 20th century. He had led the country through its Balkan Wars, ...and the Great War experience. Under his rule as Premier and leader of the Greek Liberal Party... ...Greece ballooned in size and the Ottoman enemy of yore was expelled. The experience of the Great War was less rosy but still successful in the end. Placing the country in the Allied camp, Venizelos was determined in the aftermath... ...to collect on the debt which the Allies owed. But unlike his counterparts in Italy, Yugoslavia or Romania, for example... ...who had all entered the war with its aftermath in mind... Venizelos managed to rub those he came in contact with very much in the right way. This is because Venizelos was charming, he was a good listener and he was largely of a calm disposition, not driven to animated arguments or making overtly dramatic speeches. Instead, he was generally content to sit listening to the sides of the argument before making a concise reply. This recommended him to Harold Nicholson, who you'll recall had not been impressed by the Romanian leader, Ioan Bratianu, mostly due to the way that figure carried himself. For the exact same reason, Nicholson warmed to Venizelos and sat down for meals with him on several occasions. If you weren't aware, one of our delegation game players selected Venizelos as their avatar and they have been ripping up the rulebook as far as Greece's position during the Paris Peace Conference goes, so make sure you check out the delegation game if you're into some alternative interactive history. But Nicholson had no time for games, and neither did Venizelos in 1919. Venizelos was actually already present and waiting for the committee members to arrive when Nicholson opened the door into the Salamangé of the Quai d'Orsay on Monday morning, the 24th of Feb. Venizelos was not allowed to stay while the committee determined on the questions it would put to him, but Nicholson noted again that while he and the French were happy not to throw much muck at the Greeks, the Italians had made a point of going through Venizelos' earlier speeches to the Council of Ten, and they had marked all the points which had bothered them for future discussion. This essentially meant to Nicholson's indignation that the Italians had marked all of the points which Venizelos had made in his speeches to the Council of Ten a few weeks before. Nicholson noted that Jules Cambon, the Frenchman chairing the committee, disallowed some Italian questions on the basis that, as Nicholson noted, they were devised merely to put Venizelos in an uncomfortable position. A sprinkle of moderation ensured that this did not happen and Nicholson recorded that Venizelos, "...is overwhelmingly frank, genial, and subtle. His charm lights up the room. As always, he is the triumph of his personality, but no real ice has been cut. These auditions, even before a so-called body of experts, are a farce." Nicholson's frustrations were beginning to show, as these committees seemed incapable of arriving at decisions, and they hosted ethnic leaders who had far more right determining their country's future than the Allies. Unfortunately, matters were not much better when Nicholson returned to the Council of Ten that afternoon to find the Albanian delegate Turkum Pasha droning on. And the Council of Ten, chatter and laugh while this is going on. Rather painful. In the end, the entire Albanian question is referred to our Greek committee, which means still more work, Every now and then, Nicholson expressed his true feelings at the apparent futility of his mission, and whatever was going through his mind on the 24th of February, he seemed especially melancholy that day. He noted shortly after his experience, seeing the Albanian delegate be pretty much ignored, that "...walk back to the Hotel Creon and study possible Thracian lines, a disheartening job, how fallible one feels here, a map, a pencil..." tracing paper. Yet, my courage fails at the thought of the people whom our errant lines enclose or exclude, the happiness of several thousands of people. How impossible to combine speed with examination. There is nothing more that we can learn from books, statistics, maps, interviews. And yet, there is a definite, inarticulate human element behind it all somewhere. And somewhere, there must be a definite human desire behind all these lies and lies. It is impossible short of five years to find out what a majority is and what it really wants. Our views and our decisions must of necessity be empirical, guided by a real honesty of purpose. After a day off, which still included several meals with important functionaries, Nicholson was back in the thick of the Greek committee on Wednesday the 26th of February. They spend the morning pressing Venizelos on the rights of Muslim minorities in Asia Minor and on the Turkish public debt. Nicholson's day is a blur of quick meetings with disagreeable colleagues over the fate of Thrace. Come back and work hard, but I feel exhausted, Nicholson wrote just before dinner. The last fortnight has been terribly trying, and I foresee another fortnight as bad. The strain is appalling. Nicholson was unfortunately correct. As tired as he was now, the strain was only destined to get worse. And still, the Greek committee of which he was a part had not delivered its final verdicts. Nicholson didn't even enjoy a peaceful dinner, as it was spent in the Hotel Majestic with several Greeks, whom Nicholson followed to a party in Venizelos' house afterwards. Perhaps he was enjoying himself, at least a bit, but the feelings did not last, quickly giving way to exhaustion again. The place is lit by wax candles, Nicholson observed on Venizelos's residence. Very Congress of Vienna. Nicholson also took the time to note the increased security presence, which was a feature of Paris since the attempt on Clemenceau. The party is odd, Nicholson writes, before listing off a range of attendees as varied as the old Russian foreign minister, Sergei Sazanov, and the Archbishop of Spalato in Croatia. Rushing up against these equally exhausted people, Nicholson recorded that, after making light conversation with the Archbishop, wherein he commented, wherein he commented on the ridiculousness of the Yugoslavs laying claim to Trieste, the Archbishop, close to half asleep with exhaustion himself, simply replied with a sigh of Of whom do you speak? Of course, Nicholson's portfolio wasn't big enough already and he had been named as a technical advisor for the Czechoslovak committee as well. This took up most of his time on Thursday the 27th of February since the committee was meeting for the first time. Unfortunately, Nicholson noted that the British representative on the committee, Sir Joseph Cook of New South Wales, maintained an attitude which could best be described as «benevolent boredom». Nonetheless, they do make good progress – stopping only when discussing the border of Slovakia with Poland, as they had to wait on what the Polish committee had decided on that question first. Then it was off to the Greek committee in the afternoon once again, where, once again, the unfortunate Albanian elder statesman, Turkum Pasha, was treated with disinterest. Not an interesting or pleasing ceremony, Nicholson recorded. It is sad to see people who have come all the way from Adrianople given only ten minutes in that large hot room in front of eight bored people. Turkin was especially pitiable. Nicholson's anger was starting to show, and when he met with the Czechs at dinner that day, he snapped altogether. I am feeling exhausted and unstrung, Nicholson wrote, as if warning the reader to stay back but the Czechs didn't get the message. Edward Benesh has masses of sketch maps designed for the use of children, Nicholson observed, before adding acidly, or for the Council of Ten. When one Czech thanked Nicholson for his time before then proceeding to show on a map why the new Czech state must be connected via land corridor to Yugoslavia, Nicholson confesses that he lost his temper. You're welcome, he boomed at the supremely startled check, before exclaiming, Do not talk about it. It is stupidity. Nicholson even recalled in his state of anger that across the room, Lady Muriel Paget, the British relief worker and recipient of the Order of the British Empire, a woman whom Nicholson greatly admired, looks across at me with deep blue eyes of reproach. Nicholson couldn't go on like this come back dead to the world, was all he could write that evening, followed by, this is all too much. The next day, on the final day of February 1919, Nicholson makes a point of noting that he visited a doctor who gave him a strong tonic. This seemed to tide him over for a while, but the outburst was surely a symptom of strain, and the real cure was a break, a proper break, From the whole place. But Nicholson's expertise was needed on Friday, the 28th of February, for the Czech committee. He did at least dine that evening with Jules Cambon, whom Nicholson felt at home with. It is restful to be with this witty, disillusioned, but honourable old man, Nicholson said. Before adding that Cambon informed him about Clemenceau's refusal to listen to doctor's orders. Clemenceau, fewer than ten days removed from an experience which would have shattered the nerves of lesser men, had appeared before the Council of Ten on that day. The first of March greeted Nicholson like any other day. Checks all morning, Greek committee all afternoon, he limply noted. When discussing the question of the Greeks possessing Asia Minor, Harold Nicholson noted that the Americans present on the Greek delegation contested the Greek claims to Turkey's west coast. The Italians then flare up, Nicholson recorded, saying that they must refuse to discuss, in committee, any questions covered by the secret treaties of 1915 and 1917. To this note of frustration, Nicholson was able to add a measure of discredit towards the Americans. The Yanks, bless their hearts, then state solemnly that they were not parties to these secret treaties, and cannot recognise their validity. When the Italians threatened to withdraw from the entire committee at this snub, Nicholson noted that he handed the British delegate a paper to read out, which effectively changed the subject, by bringing up the fact that it would be impossible to place Greeks under any kind of mandate. This is a good red herring, Nicholson recalled, and the tumult subsides. I escape to my Czech committee, which is droning away in the next room. But even in among the Czechs, Nicholson found that there was little in the way of commonality to be had. Not much progress as to frontiers, all rather hopeless and loose-ended. Nobody who has not had experience of committee work in actual practice can conceive of the difficulty in inducing a Frenchman, an Italian, an American and an Englishman to agree on anything. A majority agreement is easy enough. A unanimous agreement is an impossibility, or, if possible, then possible only in the form of some paralytic compromise. The 2nd of March being a Sunday did not prevent Nicholson and his peers from banging on with more work. The Czechs took up the morning with deliberations over the different reservations, which each delegate had about partitioning Czech territory here, or giving land to Poland instead there, ...or leaving Hungarians within the wrong borders because it was the best of a set of bad options. The region was like one large headache without any cure. Nicholson talked through it in his diary as though we were familiar with each town, region or disputed railway line that was mentioned. But rather than delve into that, we should note that Nicholson spent the afternoon writing up the first draft of the report... ...which would be presented to the Council of Ten in less than a week. Time had indeed crept up on the Greek committee and its Czech counterpart was nowhere close to finished in its deliberations. Again, to tease more out of the Czechs, Edward Benesh and others dined with the British delegations at the Ritz. This at least cheered Nicholson up a bit. A swell affair, he called it. It was at dinner that Nicholson was cornered by Marcel Proust, the French novelist, critic and essayist who wrote the seven-part novel series In Search of Lost Time also known as In Search of Things Past, just before his death in 1922. Proust's novels were all about his own life experiences, and he was eager to learn as much as he could about the specifics of Nicholson's experiences of the Paris Peace Conference so far. Nicholson found Proust white, unshaven, grubby, slip-faced, but he did cave in and answer his questions when Proust asked for more specifics. So I tell him everything, Nicholson said. The sham, cordiality of it all. The handshakes, the maps, the rustle of papers, the tea in the next room, the macaroons. He listens, enthralled, interrupting from time to time with, Specify, my dear sir, do not go too fast. On Monday the 3rd of March, Nicholson notes his efforts to continue drawing up the Greek committee report. He received visitors from the Czechs, before attending their committee once more in the afternoon. Exhausting and indefinite, Nicholson recorded. The 4th of March wasn't much better, but frantic work was underway for the penultimate Greek committee meeting. Nicholson records giving way on certain issues in return for concessions from his counterparts, noting that Albania suffered, the Italians gained some matter of satisfaction, and Venizelos gets all of Thrace and portions of Asia Minor, according to lines drawn up by the French. By the 5th of March, it seemed as though that tonic the doctor had given him was starting to wear off, as the conference's processes bore down on Nicholson's psyche. He wrote that day, Work hard all morning. Maps, plans, partitions, watersheds, canalization all those intricate processes of thought which have become a jog-trot in my brain. The strain, moral and mental, is great. Even the puddles in the pavements assume for me the shapes of frontiers, salient corridors, neutralized channels, demilitarized zones, islands. The man clearly needed a holiday, but he was needed to sit in on the full check committee that afternoon. The whole thing will be fixed up by my subcommittee on Friday, Nicholson sighed, adding, Still busy at night with my Greek committee report. He couldn't afford to sit still because the deadlines demanded that the Greek report be handed in by the 8th of March, and Nicholson was simply too busy now during the day to work on it. Still, outstanding issues remained for discussion with the Greek Premier, whom Nicholson met privately over lunch. But, my friend, do you see, my friend? Venizelos gesticulated and exclaimed when attempting to make a point. Nicholson records that he was gentle and quiet, which represented something of a break when talking with national leaders, and which Nicholson certainly appreciated. The Greek Premier was worried that the Americans were not willing to support Greek claims on Smyrna, that is, the modern Turkish city of Izmir, but added helpfully that he would wait until Woodrow Wilson returned from the United States to press the President. As long as he had the British and French support, Venizelos noted, he was not about to feel anxious. It was then on to the final Greek committee meeting, where Nicholson's weighted report was read out. Nicholson recorded that the Americans suggested some improvements and tweaks, but that by and large it was approved as the representation of the committee's final decisions. Personally, I think it was a good report, so far as it was possible to state clearly each conflicting principle. This view was not shared by all my colleagues on the committee, though, noted Nicholson with some refreshing honesty. After returning to the Hotel Astoria that night, Nicholson recorded with palpable despair that he was informed that the documents from the Foreign Office had just come in a few hours before. Piles of documents in from the Foreign Office, he noted, as his bed, no doubt, called out to him. Boxes full. Work, 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 work. On the 7th of March, the day before the committee reports were due to be presented, Nicholson, perhaps having pulled an all-nighter, joined the Czech committee's discussion over maps and contested regions. Following a lockjam in opinion, Nicholson gave way, feeling he had no other choice. In despair, he concluded on the events of that day with an ominous note on his feelings towards Czechoslovakia. I am anxious about the future political complexion of the Czech state if they have to digest solid enemy electorates, plus an Irish party in Slovakia, plus a red party in Ruthenia to say nothing of their own extreme socialists. I come back, as so often now, dispirited, saddened, and one mass of nerves jangled and torn. I dine with Jules Cambon and the Poles and the Czechs are there. Oh God! The 8th of March was the big day for Nicholson's Greek Committee report. I take it round with a feeling of maternal pride to Sir Maurice Hankey, Nicholson recorded, before lamenting, No other report is ready. Nicholson knew that his other great responsibility to the Czech committee had not been completely fulfilled, and that its report was not ready, but he must have imagined, quite reasonably, that among the roughly 20 other committees, some other body would have reached its final decisions by now. Nicholson does not record his feelings on this fact, considering his hard work up to the thirteenth hour in trying to get it all ready, and his consistent burning of the candle at both ends, we can imagine that he was frustrated and disappointed all at once. He didn't have long to dwell on this, though. Moving off to the Czech committee in the late morning, where additional questions, like the issue of a land corridor connecting Czechoslovakia with Yugoslavia, were discussed, the latter being one such issue to be conclusively dealt with, the request which had made Nicholson blow a gasket a few days before, would not be fulfilled. At last we agree, Nicholson noted with relief, before recording an amusing incident which followed, where the once benevolently bored British delegate on the Czech committee, Sir Joseph Cook, was suddenly asked by Jules Cambon for the official British view of the situation. Well, exclaimed Joseph Cook, with absolutely zero sense of whether his words fit into the mood of the moment, All I can say is that we are a happy family, aren't we? An expression of acute agony twitches on the face of the interpreter, Nicholson noted, before adding that the French translator generally adjusted Cook's response for Cambon's benefit, to read, The first British delegate can see that we are a happy family, which still caused a painful silence to follow. To the interpreter, Nicholson remarked, Sir Joseph Cook is a thorn in the flesh. The following day, Sunday the ninth of March, Nicholson recorded in a letter to his father how things were going, writing I had hoped that today would see me through the really hard part of the work and in fact the Greek and Czechoslovak commissioners have their reports ready but now comes in an edict from the Council of Ten to say that we must put these reports in the form of treaties and so again there opens before me a week of committees drafts, articles, proposals, counter-proposals, statistics, compasses rulers tracing paper, coloured inks, and dossier after dossier to read, I feel quite dead with it all and so dispirited. It is as though four architects had each designed an entirely different house and then met around a table to arrive at an agreement, which means, of course, a compromise, in which all the designs are fused into a conglomeration which has no sense or coherence. Even the worst individual design is better than a fusion of four, but perhaps I am unduly dispirited. The last two and a half weeks had played havoc with Harold Nicholson's patience, nerves, mood and sleeping pattern, and all that had emerged in the end of this exhaustive process were two reports from the different committees he had sat on as a technical adviser. Now that the Council of Ten had decided that these reports be made into treaties, a not impossible task but one which required an entirely different form of language, and consultation with legal experts as well as additional interviews with the authors of the original report, to ensure that they were positive of their decisions before they were ironclad, Nicholson could see no end to his role on these two committees, let alone involvement in the Paris Peace Conference itself. Germany hadn't even factored into Nicholson's life, yet by the middle of March, this senior foreign office clerk found that he was already tapping out. Having gone through these eventful days with him, it becomes clear that even while the Big Three were absent, the work did not stop, if anything it increased, The anxiety was not cured, if anything it had become more intense. The problems were not solved, if anything, they had gotten worse. Nicholson was only one Foreign Office clerk amidst a British and Empire delegation brimming with talented, ambitious, opinionated young men who were dying to play a role in shaping this new world order. By the time the American president returned to the fray though, he would have noted a degree of fatigue among virtually all of the delegations who had worked in the late hours to deliver reports to the Council of Ten by a fixed date, only to have that council change its mind on what it precisely wanted. Next time we're going to spend the episode examining exactly what this depleted Council of Ten was up to, while it handed these contradictory orders about, and waited for the VIPs of the Big Three to return. In the meantime, spare a thought for poor old Harold Nicholson. He was already more than fed up with the sight of these committees and colleagues and counterparts, Not to mention the city of Paris itself, but he was far from finished yet.